I plead with Theodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Have you read that little verse in Philippians? Philippians chapter 4. Do you know what it's like to be in that situation where there are some people in your life that you care deeply about, as the Apostle Paul cared for these two ladies, and you see that they're not getting along, you see there's conflict, you see there's division, you see they're not doing well as a result of this, and your heart just says, oh, Lord, will you just help these people to come together again? Will you help them to reach agreement with one another in the Lord? Paul had earlier written in his letter to the Philippians these fantastic words. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, so starting with God and our relationship with God, if you've experienced the truth of God, if you've accepted the love of God, if you've been drawn into relationship with God, and if as a result God has changed your heart, if you have any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, he writes. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. In other words, all of the, the goodness that you've received from God ought to change who we are and flow out into our relationships with others. Which is why when Paul thinks of these women who he cares about very deeply and they're not one with one another, they're not in agreement, he just wants them to be restored to this. But was it just a couple of ladies in Philippi who were having trouble getting along in the church of God? Well, no, because he wrote a letter called uh, 1 Corinthians, which is also in your Bible. And similarly to what he wrote to the Philippians, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, again, starting with our relationship with God and our foundation for everything in life. I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. It's the heart of God for us, that we would be in a state of agreement with one another. Not just a couple of ladies in Philippi, but Paul writes to this whole church and says, I want all of you to be in this condition. But what is the very next thing he says? My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And what I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, which is Peter, by the way, still another, I follow Christ. But is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? And he goes on and spends the next four chapters of his letter addressing that issue. And these two examples remind us that ever since sin entered into our world, it's been messing up our relationship with God and it's been messing up our relationships with each other, which is why we're doing a series together on reconciliation. Because both our relationship with God, which sets the tone for everything else in our life, and our relationships with each other struggle at times. We're created as spiritual beings and social beings. And when things aren't right in our relationship with God, we struggle spiritually. When things aren't right in our relationships with others, we struggle socially and both those things matter. And both those things need repairing when they're broken. And in fact, that's the whole story of the Bible. So today we're going to explore a second relationship superpower. We started the series last week and we'll recap that in just a sec. But today we go on to discover the second superpower that God has given us in order to see relationships healed and repaired. And it's the power of agreement. And we saw it referred to in those two scriptures that we just read. But agreement can be hard to reach, can't it? 
as we read about Euodia and Syntyche, are you thinking of some people in your life? And maybe you're one of those people that says, I'm not seeing eye to eye and there's a struggle. Or as we read about the church in Corinth, have you recognised that there are some people who they, I belong to this tribe and this tribe doesn't really like or agree with that tribe and we are so much better and we've got so much more truth than these people over here, just like they were doing with Apollos and Cephas and Paul. It's normal, it's natural, this thing happens to us. And there are some things that tend to happen within our hearts. And the Bible uh, describes these time and time again, not just in these churches at Philippi and at Corinth. There are some things that tend to happen in all of us that get in the way of us experience the agreement that Paul asks for when he prays for the Philippians and when he writes to the Corinthians. And I wonder if you've seen these sort of things at work in your life or in the world around you. The first thing that gets in the way of agreement, this basic law of human nature, is this. Don't ever admit that the other side could be right about anything or that you're wrong about anything. Right? Now, none of us would ever say that we think that way. How many of you would say, well, that's me to a T. <laughs> no one else is ever right. I'm always right. They're always wrong. None of us would say that about ourselves, but I wonder if you've caught yourself ever acting as though that were true. You know when you're in a disagreement with somebody and they say something which is quite true and you can't change the, the point of the conversation quickly enough. Well, yeah, but what about that over there? You want to distract as soon as you can. You don't want to concede that point. You want to make sure that you nail your point. That seems to happen in me. I don't know if it ever happens in you. Or when somebody else has kind of relayed something and you know, oh, I've done the wrong thing or, yeah, maybe I'm not quite right about that. But the immediate response is, yeah, but you haven't got it right about that. Um, we, we do this natural deflection thing. We don't like to pause and acknowledge, you know what, they might have a point. There might be some truth there that I need to hear. Or, you know what, maybe I did wrong in that situation or maybe I've got it wrong. We tend to want to change the topic really, really quickly when those things come up. If you've ever watched kids arguing, as parents, how frustrating does that get when you see that bouncing back and forth? Well, you just listen to each other. But there's something in us that tends not to want to do that. Which, of course, when we do that, when I'm in a bit of a debate with Looker and he says something that I don't want to hear and I say, well, what about this? Then he goes away feeling like I don't want to listen to him. He feels unheard. He feels uncared for. So who does he go talk to? He'll talk to somebody who agrees with him, because at least they'll listen. The person who disagreed with him wouldn't listen, so we're not seeing agreement reached. We're seeing people clumping with who they already agree with and moving away from those they disagree with. I was in the car a couple of weeks ago, um, and it was such a striking experience. I told a few people about it afterwards. We were listening to um, a discussion with a journalist and a politician. And uh, so uh, as we were driving along listening to this really interesting discussion, one of my children said, that person's in opposition, aren't they? And of, of course they were in opposition, how could you tell? Because nothing about that decision was any good whatsoever except that thing that they started when they were in government and good to see that at least they were still doing that thing. Um, it was very clear that no um, ground would be given. This opposition member would not acknowledge anything good about the government's position on that particular topic that was being discussed. It happens in politics, happens in relationships like we were just discussing. 
And one thing that was interesting, uh, I read a, an article from somebody who'd worked in US politics for a really long time. And she said, you know, back in the day, I'm showing my age here a little bit, but and so she, back in the day, you used to have all these public disagreements where the Republicans would never uh, agree with the Democrats and, and vice versa. But behind closed doors, they'd have their congressional committees and all those sorts of things, and they'd come at things from their different points of view, and they'd hash things out, and they'd do their very best, because that's what they're elected to do, to come up with a good solution for the American people. And she was describing how she got to see some of that and it kind of made her feel good about being in politics because she saw some great outcomes achieved even by people who disagreed on some really important issues. But she said, over the last 10 years or so, what I've noticed is the vitriol in the public debate has become so intense that when they come together behind closed doors, the desire to work together and to compromise and to see the good in each other's arguments just isn't there anymore. And so they're not seeing those outcomes being achieved. And nobody wants to come out to the public and say, well, this is the solution we've come up with because somebody on you know, their side of politics might say, you compromise with that lot. And they don't want to bear that angst. So the first rule is don't ever admit that the other lot might be right or that you might be wrong. And that leads very much into that experience that I've just relayed, which is this rule, don't ever take the middle ground. If there's an argument going on, don't get caught in the middle, whatever you do. Now, it used to be, you, do you remember there was a thing like finding the middle ground was seen as a really good thing to do? <laughs> that sounds great. Not anymore, not the way that society seems to work. Finding the middle ground is sticking your head up, waiting to get it shot off, um, whether you're talking about politics or relationships or whatever. And why is that? Because let's just say that, uh, again, I'll use Looker over here on this side. Um, let's say that Looker and I agree on a bunch of things, but then Pauline's talking to me and I see her point, and so I go, you know, Looker, you know, she has a bit of a point here. Straight away, he's actually feeling like I've betrayed him because I was supposed to be one of his people and now I've taken a step toward the other side. And when you're more interested in being right than in finding the truth, that's something that should never happen. And so now he feels personally betrayed by him. Even though I'm still closer to your side than her side, he sees me as somebody who's compromising, who's selling out, who's on a slippery slope toward becoming one of them. And so he's actually probably going to feel uh, more vitriol toward me than even he does toward his opponent. Why? Because I've let him down. I've betrayed him. I've let the team down. And so finding that middle ground becomes a very dangerous thing to do. Also, there's a very strategic reason why he ought to be more concerned about me than he is about his opponent. Do you know why? Because people over on this side who know me and who share some common ground with me are more likely to listen to me than they are to listen to that person who's very, very different from them. And so if I'm willing to change, I may well influence other people. And that becomes a very threatening thing. So in politics, if you ever see somebody starting to compromise, very often the people who are more extreme on their side of politics, or in a relationship, if you ever see somebody saying, well, maybe that other person has a point, the person they're close to sometimes goes, oh, the middle ground is dangerous. Have you experienced those kinds of things? And both of those realities make agreement really hard to reach. Because both of those elements of human nature mean that stepping toward agreement becomes dangerous relationally. Because people would rather you stay with them where they are at rather than move toward where God is at and explore the truth that God is trying to teach us. And that's what leads us into quickly recapping what we talked about last week. 
Because if we're going to reach agreement on anything, we want to be clear about this. We don't want to agree on things that are wrong. I'm not interested in going along with other people's sinful thoughts and attitudes and behaviours and ideas. What I'm interested in is truth, God's truth. And so that's why it's really important to have a good concept of what truth actually is because that's where we want our agreement to be found, not agreeing in things that are not true. Agreement for agreement's sake is not a win. But agreeing in the truth, that's what we're called to. So we need to be really firm on what truth is. And so for those who were here last week, this is going to be a really quick recap, but hopefully enough so that if you weren't here last week, you'll at least be able to follow along with us. Last week we discovered the first relationship superpower is actually truth, and the first thing we need to know about the truth is that it is theological. In other words, truth comes from God and is about God. And if you don't know that, and again, listen to the sermon last week for more info on that, if you don't know that the truth is actually an expression of who God is and what God is like and what God is saying, if you think that truth is able to be found outside of God, then you're not only at war with God, you're actually at war with reality. Because whatever God says is true, whether you want to believe it or not, nothing that goes against what God says is true will actually work with reality. It will always have a destructive consequence in your life. All truth comes from God. That's a faith statement, but you need to know that that is true. And having uh, kind of accepted that, we also need to realise that the truth, the truth that is in God, consists of many small-t truths. There's a lot to know about life. There's a lot to know about God. There's a lot to know about what goes on in our hearts. There's a lot to know about the physical universe. The truth is massive. And I've drawn a few dots there, but there's actually pretty much an infinite number of truths that make up the truth. And I am not able to actually comprehend and understand and explain every single truth that makes up God's truth. Only God is vast enough to know all truth perfectly. Um, But... What we can say, let me just click the next slide, is if God defines what is really true, then there are also things that are not true. There are such things as lies. Yes, the truth is huge, and it's huger than any of us can comprehend, but that doesn't mean that everything that people say is going to be true. There are some things that don't fit with God and his truth. And none of us are going to get it right all the time. So there are some particular truths that I know and are able to communicate and live by, but there are other truths that maybe I don't yet um, have a, a handle on and need to learn and grow in in my relationship with God. On the other hand, there are some things that I think are true that might not actually be true. And there are some things that I do that don't fit with the truth. So um, since none of us is perfect, we're all in that boat where, yes, we live by the truth and we know the truth some of the time, most of the time, But there are always going to be some things that we're a bit fuzzy on and we're not quite correct on. And there are always going to be some things that we're not doing uh, in ways that fit with the truth. That's just what life in this world is like. And just because I think something's true doesn't mean it actually is true. So we're in a spiritual battle. You've got God who is the source of all truth and wants to teach us all of those truths that help us to be mature and complete and enable us to live the kind of lives that he designed for us. But then you have the enemy of God, Satan, who is known as the deceiver. He's known as the father of lies. And his agenda is exactly the opposite. He wants to pull us away from what is true and ruin our lives because we're living our lives on the basis of his lies. That's the reality of the world that we live in. Making sense so far? I know it's a lot to cover, but we're nearly there. 
Here's, here's the bit that really gets our heads stretched. And truths can be in tension without being contradictory. We explored this a fair bit last week. So if you missed that one, go back and, and look at how Jesus dealt with the situation in John 8. But let me give you just a, a, an illustration of what that can look like. If we only ever teach about the justice of God, we'll talk a lot about things like judgment. And we'll talk a lot about rules. And those things are actually important to know about and to live uh, in, in awareness of. But if we only ever talk about mercy, we'll emphasise forgiveness and we'll emphasise patience and understanding and acceptance and all of those things. And all of those things are also great. But have you ever noticed that there are times when getting the balance right between am I needing to be more merciful in this situation or do I need to be more concerned with justice in this situation, sometimes they are at odds with each other. Have you ever experienced that? And if you're shaking your head, you must never have been involved in parenting or teaching or doing any of that kind of stuff because that's a big, big tension that is normal for us in life. Now, what Satan wants to do is the father of lies. He wants to pull us toward one of those to the exclusion of the other, if he can, because then he wins. Right, so if Satan can pull us toward justice without mercy, let's just emphasise justice. Is justice true? Yes. But what does it do if it doesn't have mercy as a point of tension, making sure that we don't go in the direction of lies rather than the direction of truth. Well, we become legalistic, don't we? We become uh, consumed with self-righteousness. And if you want to see evidence of that, look at the Gospels, look at Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders, and you see how that was working. Justice without mercy creates a sort of legalistic environment which is an offence to God and it damages people. But in the same way, if you have mercy without justice, you have licentiousness. Again, sorry for the big word, starts with L, like legalism, so it's working for me. Um, but essentially what it means is you've got a license to do whatever you feel, whatever you think is right, whatever you want to do. It's the opposite of living God's way with God's strength. And that also leads to offence to God and damage to people. So we need to have both. Those who tend to emphasise justice more, who are more at risk of tipping over into the lie of legalism, they're pulled this way by the people who emphasise mercy. And they might have tipped over into licentiousness, except the people who are really good at emphasising justice pulled them back this way. And together we are being pulled into the truth. Now, does that help you to see the biblical concept of agreement? Agreement is that we're not the same. Agreement is that we both want to pull each other into the truth and celebrate God's truth together and we're helping protect each other from the lies that we naturally fall into. Do you see how that works? And this might seem very theoretical. It's like, man, I'm in a Philosophy 101 lecture here. When is this going to end? But let's get very, very practical with this. Let's say somebody you love is pursuing a path that goes against God's ways. They're choosing to live a lifestyle of sin. What do you do in that situation? What do you do when somebody is making choices that don't fit with God? They're living in ways that offend his justice. The tension between justice and mercy becomes very real for you there. And the consequences of going too far one way or the other become very scary. See, if you fail to emphasise justice, you're at risk of letting them just continue down paths that you know are bad for them. And you know not only will they, those paths damage them, but they will damage others as they go down those paths and take other people with them. And if you fail to emphasise mercy, you, you make God unattractive and you make reconciliation seem unattainable, like I'm not good enough anymore. 
If you don't address your concern about their sin, it makes it seem to them like their sin's not a big deal to you. And they may even conclude that they matter more to you than God does because you don't seem all that concerned to stand up for God and his ways in their situation. And that means that they're in charge. That's not healthy. But if you don't address your unconditional love for them, well, it makes them feel like their failures, their sins, matter more to you than what they do. And that they might think that because you love God so much that you love them less. That's the exact opposite of what God's love does. God's love causes us to love people more, not less, ever. And that's just scratching the surface, but you can see as you explore these tensions, these are actually really important things to figure out. Um, how do we get those, those two truths in agreement with one another? And how do I avoid following my natural tendency, which might go into these errors, and let people pull me into God's truth because they do see some things that I don't see and they've got some experience that I don't have and they know some scriptures that I don't know and all of those things that will help me come toward agreement in the truth. And that leads us to our last point about truth. There we go. Truth is only encountered through faith and in humility. So I've taken all the dots out because the dots were driving me a little bit crazy. But you get the idea, right? There's, there's lots of truth in there and there's some things that we have right and there's some things that we have wrong. And if I'm going to know that I need some correction, that I don't have everything right, that's going to require some humility from me. And if I'm going to trust that God can give me that truth and that he can even provide that truth through other people who see things differently to me, that's going to require some faith. I'm going to need to trust God and have some humility if I'm going to experience the truth that he wants to give me. If I'm going to come to agreement in the truth instead of uh, drifting off into the lies that Satan wants to pull me into. And that seems pretty straightforward and easy until you get to that. And you might think, well, what is that? Well, what if I'm a person who is very, very committed to my relationship with God, to living by the scriptures, to learning and growing? I'm that guy on the left-hand side at the top. Uh, hang on, the right-hand side. <laughs> um, as, as a... Your left, my right. <laughs> um, so, so I've got a lot of the truth. Does that mean I've got all the truth? No, I'm not Jesus yet. Um, that's only going to happen when he returns and makes us all uh, perfect. Uh, so there's still some things that I've got wrong. And I might look at somebody who is really, really aggressively anti-Christian. He thinks we're all whatever. Uh, homophobic, transphobic, racist, whatever the, the accusation might be, uh, bigoted, self-righteous, judgmental, you know, whatever the label is that, you, that tends to be used. And they're saying some things that are very hurtful. And you think, that's not me. How receptive do you feel to that person teaching you things that you need to know? Probably not much. But do you see that it is possible that there are some things that they are seeing that you need to see too. Maybe the reason for the vitriol is in something that they've experienced in Christians that should never have been there. And maybe the best people to show us that that stuff is there in us are the people who feel most angry with us. Because they should be. Because what happened wasn't right. It's not easy to have the humility to accept that, is it? It's not easy when, when people are saying, oh, don't you listen to that person. You're heading down a slippery slope. You'll become just like them. But hang on, they have got a bit of God's truth because they're made in the image of God and all people, therefore, have access to his truth. 
But listening can be confronting and it can feel like listening can be dangerous when others aren't going to allow you the freedom to do so. So what does it mean, understanding what the truth is, to pursue agreement? To agree, not in error, not to join people in sin, not to follow people's foolishness, but to help to come to an agreement in the truth. Well, let's look at Philippians 2 again. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And that very similar theme as Paul wrote to uh, Christians in another city in Corinth. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and in thought. Now, Paul's not expecting that. This means that we're going to know everything about everything and that's why we agree because we just know all there is to know. What he's saying is truth doesn't fight with other truth. Truth loves truth. And regardless of whether it's that whole justice and mercy thing or any other of those truths that make up what God is trying to communicate, all truth is compatible. It is never at odds. And so when you see divisions, what is that evidence of? It's evidence of the fact that we've let some lies slip in. Maybe it's because of pride or maybe it's because of arrogance or maybe it's just because we've inherited a bunch of ways of thinking. Roman says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Right? Don't conform any longer. That's where you started from. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Whenever there's division, it shows us that we've still got some lies that are affecting us in some way. Some habits that need to be cleansed from. Some thoughts that need to be refined. Division is evidence that we are not yet fully in the truth. They're only possible when lies have been allowed to influence our actions. So... What do we do in order to experience this beautiful sense of community that Paul is uh, wanting for these people in Philippi and Corinth that Jesus prayed for? If you were here last week in John 17, may they be one, Father, so that the world may know that I'm in you and you're in me. So how do we experience that unity together? Well, we need to be very aware of that obstacle, whether it's the personal conflict with, for example, Euodia and Syntyche, whether it's the more uh, intellectual or theological or philosophical conflict where I like that kind of teaching, no, I like that kind of teaching. Well, I think that sort of leadership is best. I like that kind of leadership. Both of those kinds of things are an obstacle to unity. So who should we side with, Euodia or Syntyche? Notice Paul doesn't break down the argument at all. He just says, church, will you help them to find agreement in the truth? Who do we side with when it comes to Paul or Apollos or Peter? Again, Paul spends those four chapters saying, hey, it's all about Jesus. I was called to teach on this kind of stuff. Apollos is teaching on this kind of stuff. It's all the truth and you need all of it. Can we just get over those wrong human loyalties? But in both case, cases, it's where people have dropped their eyes from the source of truth, who is God, and we've made it about people. What kind of people do we approve of? What kind of people do we disapprove of? What kind of people do I feel close to? And who are the ones that I tend to be repulsed by or repelled by? When we make anything about people instead of about God, we become enemies of the truth. Because truth is theological. 
and all people have a role to play in guiding us into truth if we will allow God to show us how they can do that instead of operating on the basis of just how we tend to treat each other. Does that make sense? Alrighty. If you love God, you will love what every single human being can teach you about him. You'll love what every circumstance can teach you about him. As Jess prayed earlier, even suffering. Suffering sucks, right? But you'll love the fact that it can teach you to depend on God and teach you what God is like and teach you that God is sufficient for you. If you really love your teachers and leaders, you won't ever put them on a pedestal. I want you to compare everything I teach with the Bible. And I want you to take stuff from other leaders because there's some things that I'm just not as good as teaching, at teaching as some others are. And you'll benefit from that as long as you are testing it with God's word. They'll connect with you in some ways that I don't. And by the grace of God, they'll get some things right that I am getting wrong and you'll be better off for it. So practically speaking, what do we do about this concept of agreement and this concept of agreeing in the truth? Well, as you've seen in the pictures that we've shown, let me uh, stick one more up on there. We need one another in order to grow in the truth. That's why the Bible just doesn't talk to us about truth individually. It urges us to find agreement with one another. That helps us. And where we most need agreement is in the people who are most different from us because they will correct our natural uh, tendencies to live by the lies instead of in the truth. So what do we do about that? Well, it's pretty simple. Don't hang around people who agree with you all the time. Don't hang around people who are similar. But don't we tend to do that? Don't we tend to clump together? Okay, we're going to keep our young adults over here and we don't want them hanging around with the older people because older people are so boring and they tend to have such strong opinions about how you should use your money and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, and we want to keep the older people over here because young people are so irritating, aren't they? They're so energetic and they don't you know, really know and they don't stop to listen. You know, there's all kinds of clumps that tend to emerge just naturally. Um, and we've got to be very conscious, hey, that's actually a pattern of this world that we want to get rid of. We actually want to be broadly connected with one another. How is, uh, let's just say again, make me the bad guy, Luca. Maybe um, I've said something to Luca and, and he's really struggling with that. Um, how, how can he process that? What if there's somebody who's about my age and has similar views to me but has a better relationship with Luca who can come alongside and say, you know what, I, I get what you're feeling who can hear him where he's at, but who can also say, but you know what, I can see where Mike's coming from as well. If Luca knows some people who are more like me, he's less likely to naturally conflict with me. He's going to get me more. So as a church, we want to really encourage that. That's why we talk a lot about neighbourhood groups. Hey, figure out who, who are the Christians who live close to you. They may be old, they may be young, they may be people from uh, your educational background or not. They may do the kinds of work that you do or not. They may be married or single or sole parenting or whatever the case might be. They may be as different as anything. And isn't that awesome? Because those differences will really help you, not only by teaching you some truths that they're really well equipped to teach you, but when you are having a conflict with somebody else, there might be somebody in that group who kind of gets it and can help you kind of make those connections and say, okay, here's another way to process that. It's not rocket science, but it is practically very helpful and it's something that we tend 
to avoid doing. So let's deliberately cultivate diverse connections. I was talking to somebody who's had a lifelong uh, involvement in the church and we we're just celebrating some of the great things that God's done in his life through all the different things that he's been a part of. But he, he mentioned uh, the youth group that they were a part of and the fond memories of going into nursing homes as a youth group and getting to know older people and just some of the connections made there with some folks who went to the same church that continued on. And I thought about that and I thought about my own kids and some of those relationships they have with older people. What a massive gift. Let's be intentional, folks. Whether you're old, young, whatever your um, ethnic background is, whatever those differences might be, let's be intentional about seeking out those who are different. They become our best conflict coaches. Well, Scripture again and again calls us to agreement. He calls us to not show favouritism because God does not show favouritism. Don't treat one group of people as though they're more likely to be right than another group of people. Let's see truth as belonging to God and allow God to show us the truth that every single person can bring us. When we find agreement on those terms, community becomes really exciting. We push each other away less. We draw each other toward fullness in Christ more. Will you have the faith and the humility to pursue that? I hope so. Let's pray.